want to talk about two biblical events this morning, two narrative stories, whatever you want to call them. One I'm just going to call the worst day ever, and the other one I'm going to call the best day ever. You're not going to find this in your Bible, right? Those aren't the titles. Um, and, and again, wherever you're living in these days, like on that scale of best day ever, worst day ever, I, you know, you're all kind of at different points along that scale. Um, so I just want to share with you this morning that your Heavenly Father has issued a sacred invitation to you to move toward that best day ever into the scale, right? Because I know COVID has brought on a lot of really worst days ever, right? I, I know for a fact people have lost their spouses and the body wasn't there to grieve with them. And that, that's brutal. The worst, day, worst days ever, right? Just put that right up there on the list. Um, so again, I want to make a point this morning that Jesus can make it happen for you. He can move you along this scale from the worst day ever to the best day ever. So I'm going to jump in right to the first of our two days, the worst day ever. This is for King David, right? It's actually two different people. The worst day ever happened to King David. So in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we have Saul, and he's getting jealous, and he's raging because David has been crowned the king, and, and he's a little nervous, and um, people are making up mean songs about Saul and David, right? The songs go, David has killed his thousands, or Saul has killed his thousands, and, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And, and Saul is just getting jealous. He's just getting angry, so... You know, his rage kind of breaks up the friendship of his son, Jonathan, and David, you know, and in chapter 20, they, they kind of have to split up, you know, because David is running for his life because crazy Saul, he's got an evil spirit, right? The word tells us um, he's going to kill David, right? He's just, he's kind of going bonkers there just a little bit. Um, so in chapter 21, David flees to the shrine at Nob Hill. Right, this isn't the grocery store, in case you're wondering. Um, it's a hill nearby Jerusalem where the tabernacle was currently being kept. Um, not sure what David was thinking, but he felt that's where he could get sanctuary maybe. Um, so he goes there. Again, he's running away from King Saul, running away from danger. Um, and, and as he's there, he meets the, the priest there. The priest's like, whoa, what are you doing here? Um, and he basically lies. to the, don't, don't do that. You shouldn't lie to priests. Uh, that's just a side thing. Um, so he kind of makes up kind of the story, and, and, and he's looking around, and he notices off in the distance or somewhere in the crowd or whatever is going on there, he notices a guy named Doeg, right? Doeg the Edomite. And he knows that Doeg is a servant of King Saul. So he immediately thinks, oh, no, he's going to go tell Saul that I'm here. Right? So David's kind of getting panicky, and he looks around. He's like, man, I don't even got a weapon, right? I, was, I ran for my life. And he's, so he asked the priest, hey, do you know you got a weapon for me? And the priest says, funny, you should ask. Right? Let me go look back in my closet. And, oh, 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 and he pulls out this big old gigantic sword. It's, it's the sword of Goliath, right? And they had kept it back in the closet or behind the altar. I don't know where they kept it, but he, he drags it out and says, here, David, right? You remember this? So, so now David's armed. With, so I don't know if he can pick the crazy thing up. Um, so later in chapter 22, you know, this worst day ever, right? Things aren't going well for David. Um, and so he, he, he leaves this place because of Doeg, right? And he knows he's going to go tell Saul, and Saul's going to come find him. Um, but what he finds out, something Doeg does, and it doesn't happen that day, but when David finds out about it several days later in chapter 22, it kind of adds to this worst day ever. He finds out that Doeg goes and tells Saul. Saul comes into town. He asks the priest, why did you give aid and abetting or assistance to my enemy? 
thought he was the king. I thought he was one of your guys, right? I didn't know you were mad at him. So Amalek doesn't have, he doesn't have any idea what's going on. And Saul is so incensed that he tells his main guy, hey, kill, kill all the priests because they help my enemy. Well, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that to anointed. But well, how about you, Doeg? Sure, I'll do anything you say. So Doeg kills all the priests, Amalek and, and all the priests. And then he goes through, and he, you read this if you don't believe it. He kills every man, woman, child, and animal in the town. Saul is mad. So David finds out, right, in chapter 22, it's like it's his fault. Right? He put this priest in this position like the worst day ever, just a horrible day. And at this point, he flees further into enemy territory. Right? He's running away from Saul, and he's, he's running toward Philistine territory, right? the, the arch enemy of the early Israelites. Um, so, you know, Saul behind him and the enemies in front of him, like a rock in a hard spot, right? place stuck between a rock and a hard spot. So I'm going to pick up the story in verse 10. It says that David, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Gath is one of the five principal cities of Philistine, right? So that's, they had these big cities, and Gath was one of them. Um, in fact, that was the one that, that Goliath had come from. Um, but the servants of Achish said to the king, isn't that David? So David's got, like, he's going to sneak in and, and be undercover and on the DL, right, and hope nobody will notice me. But the soldiers notice him because why? David's killed thousands of them, right? They immediately recognize, oh, that's that guy. Isn't that David, the king of the land and the king of the land, right? He's not king yet, but, you know, he'd been crowned, but he hadn't been anointed and installed. And you know, anyway, um, isn't he the one that they sing about in their dances, right? Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands, and it says that David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Right? So now the bad day goes, goes from bad to worse. Right? He's, the, the picture that we get is he's been arrested, and he's waiting in an antechamber, like a, a before room, before the throne room, and he's going to appear before the king. And the king most likely, and David knows this, most likely he's going to be sentenced to death and killed on the spot. Well, well how do you know that? Because the song that everyone is singing is about David killing the king's men. So like David said, he knows, right? He's done. He's literally enjoying his last breaths on earth, absolutely convinced, or so it would appear. <laughs> David's all alone, completely separated. And this is important, completely separated from family, friends, even his men. He's separated from everybody nobody, nothing is going to come to his rescue at this point. And again, so it would appear. Now, understand, this is a warrior, right? This is a warrior, a warrior. This is his response, verse 13. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands of the two armed guards, you know, waiting to be, appear before the king, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Right, so if you think about the top 10 David stories, like the, the, the highlight reel, this one never makes it. This one never makes it, right? And, and, but you think about it as probably one of the, his most brilliant things that he ever did. It, it was really, really quite brilliant. Watch this. Verse 14, it says this, verse 14 and 15. It says, the king said to his servants, look at that man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Now, it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss, but the culture in that day didn't view mental illness like we wrongly view it today, like something to keep hidden, 
something to be ashamed of, wrongly view mental illness. We still do kind of just a little bit. Something to be kept out of sight, right? You're embarrassed of it. Their culture didn't view it like that. Their culture viewed mental illness as demon-possessed. Now, let's just kind of play this out a little bit. You're the king, and the man is demon-possessed right outside your front door. Do you want to let a demon-possessed man into your house? No. And that's what he's saying. Don't let him come into my house. And, and listen carefully, don't kill him either, because if you kill him, the demon's going to jump out of that body and jump into somebody's body here in my house. Don't, let the, don't kill him, but just get him out of here. Get him out of here. He's unclean. Right? Just, just get him out of here. So David escapes. Right? And it's, again, it's this, this strange mixture of um, abject fear and loathing and, and repulsion kind of mixed with, like, otherworldly awe, the mentally ill, right? And demon possession. Right? It's not just bad, 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 but, but it's almost like, oh, wow, power, right? Power. I mean, it scared people, but it awed them in the same way. Again, so David escapes. And here's kind of the point of the whole story. Instead of writing a psalm, telling about how great he was and what a brilliant strategy that he had come up with, right? He instead writes the 34th psalm. 34th psalm, we read this earlier. I want to read it again. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. Right? He just did the most amazing thing that people will be telling and talking about that forever. And who does he talk about? Who does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about God. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glory in the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together, right, together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame, like they're never embarrassed that they chose to follow him, right? This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. He delivers them. In other words, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he answered my prayer. Not me, not my ingenuity, not my brilliant strategy. He's the one that was behind it all. And then in the ultimate, like, like Doug was saying, the ultimate, don't take my word for it, right? Right? If you don't believe what I say, watch this. Right? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. That's kind of a, a Hebrew parallelism, right? If you take refuge in him, you've tasted and seen, right, that he'll protect you. Right? So two kind of same ways of saying something. And in a way, like Doug was saying earlier, right, miracles are the ultimate, the ultimate. You don't believe what I say? Watch this. Right? And, and that's what the, kind of what Jesus was doing. Like, you don't... I'm saying all this stuff, but I, I need to show, because I, I get the feeling that you're not, you don't believe me. I can see it in your eyes. You don't believe me. You're, I saw that roll of the eye, right? And so Jesus is like, well, watch this. Watch this. So this is David. This is what he's doing. He says, taste and see just how good this God that I worship truly is. And that's kind of where we want to land this morning. Who is this guy? Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? Right, that, that changes lives. Who, who, who is this guy? Um, I want to jump ahead about a thousand years. That's the, that's the distance, just in case you guys are struggling with your timelines. King David and Jesus, about a thousand years apart. King David was, about, was the king about a thousand years B.C., before Christ. 
And the same question is on everybody's lips, but only now it's about Jesus. But you recognize, but by extension, it's still about God because Jesus is claiming to be God. Because the question hasn't left anybody's mind, who is this Jesus? Who is this God? So I'm going to call this next story the best day ever. Hold on to this ugly story. It'll come back to us. Best day ever. It's in the book of Mark, um, one of the four gospels that, you know, Doug told you all about if you didn't know that. Um, And it's preceded, and this is important, by the parable of the sower. We looked at that last week. It's a very, very connection. It's a series of events. Mark is trying to say something. And we're going to kind of stop at one particular text at the beginning of chapter 5. But I want you to see it's connected with everything that goes before and connected with what goes on after in the book of Mark. Right? So before the worst day, excuse me, the best day ever, we've got the parable of the sower. And in it, if you've been reading along with Mark, you're now recognizing that the sower is God and he's, he's sowing not just where there's fertile soil in a Jewish mindset in Jewish territory. He's like flinging it out amongst the Gentiles, the thorns. And the rocky soil, he's, he's just like, he's just gracefully, he just, he, everybody gets a chance. Everybody. We called it preventing grace. Remember last week? And so we got that story. And then we got the very, very, very popular story that right up against this story, we got the, the calming of the sea. Right? So Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat and they cross over the Sea of Galilee to the other side. They, they cross over to the Gentile side. That's important to understand that. And in this crossing... Our text today is going to start where they land. But in the crossing, we've got the, 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 the storm. And it's, and it's connected to what I'm about to share with you about, about chapter 5 in Mark. Um, they're, they're crossing the storm. Jesus and disciples are crossing over. Jesus falls asleep. You know, the storm rises up. The p- disciples are terrified. He gets up and says, be still. Peace. And like the wind and the waves obeyed him. And the disciples are like, they're just freaked out. They are terrified. They're not so much afraid of Jesus, but they've never probably experienced that close and that personal, that kind of power. And they're just like, who is this guy? Right? He's telling us a lot of stuff, but oh my goodness, what did he just do? And they're just, they're, they're all just a little, little, little bit unwigged, right? So now <laughs> it, it gets even, it even gets um, weirder. Right, so he, he gets to the uh, other side, and that question is like still hanging in the air, right, as we come to today's text, chapter 5. Jesus visits the madman in the tombs, right, and that question is still hanging in the air. Who is this Jesus? Let's jump in, Mark chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and again, this is Mark just trying to say that, making it clear that Jesus' mission is expanding out past what everybody thought should have been the boundary, God's love doesn't go to those people. <laughs> no way, they're nuts, or they're this, or they're that. Or only us, only the fertile soil, right? And Jesus is just messing with their minds all over the place, right? He's pushing these boundaries and knocking them over. So he's crossing the lake, and Mark is saying, right, the gospel is spreading. Again, this had to mystify the disciples, right? Why does Jesus keep flirting around the edges of the boundaries, and it's not so much, I mean, they get the idea that, you know, he wants to, they knew the Old Testament story of um, um, Naomi, you know, and, and Ruth and, 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 and strangers and sojourners and aliens in the land. They, they know all that. But when it comes to God's grace being given to other people, like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 right? I mean, that, 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 bothered, that bothered people. 
right? So the disciples, they're, they're probably their biggest issue is not that he's spreading the gospel, but where he's spreading the gospel, he's spreading it into illegal areas. They're unclean areas where if you're a good Jewish person, you simply don't, there are boundaries to religion. It's not for everybody. It's just kind of for us. There's boundaries. They don't deserve it. There's boundaries. Why does Jesus, what, what is he doing? So the man with the impure spirit comes out of the tombs, and again, the idea was spirits were the living dead. So like, where do they live? In the tombs. So the people make the connection right away. Oh, man in the tombs must be demon-possessed. Okay, right? So keep reading. Verse 3 and 4. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and tore the irons on his feet. So in the tombs, not only is it where the dead spirits live, but dead bodies. If you're a good Jewish person, dead bodies are unclean. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to be in the vicinity of a dead body because then you can't go to temple. You can't. You have to kind of stop your life for a little while until you're clean again. Not These aren't sinful and unsinful ideas. They're clean and unclean. God is trying to present an idea to them that he is pure, and they have to be pure to be in his possession, in his um, presence. There's my P word, presence. So he lives in the tomb. Um, Again, they had this idea that the deadness would transfer to the aliveness of a person, right? Death would enter you by touching the dead thing. That's the way they, it, it, it traveled. Evil traveled in that direction from dead to clean and ruined clean stuff. So again, clearly the devil, this guy is demon-possessed. Attempts to restrain him, to keep himself safe, keep his neighbors safe, all had failed, right? This guy had just like supernatural strength, right? He possessed. It gets worse. It gets worse. Four and five verses, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28 says, don't cut yourself with stones because many of the religious practices of the people around you in order to prove devotion to the God, they would suffer. They would cut themselves and bleed and this is how much I love you and how much I'm sacrificing for you. Isn't it weird how our God said, I will, I'll bleed for you. I'm not going to ask you to bleed. Won't go there yet. Okay, hold on. All right, cutting bodies. This is a sign of worship in other religions. And again, the Jewish audience would have heard that he'd cut himself and had yet another reason to believe that this whole situation was not only unclean, but it was downright scary. Like, Jesus, what in the world are we doing here? And then it gets worse. You know, as you read through the story, we won't find this out for a minute or two here, but we read through the story and we find out, number one, he's naked, which to a Jewish audience, unclean, unclean unclean. This is what they hated about the Olympics and gymnastics and things like that, but they could competed naked, and the Jewish person's like, ah, burning my eyeballs out, right? So he's a naked man, right? And he's also living amongst pigs, right? In Jewish culture, pigs, cloven hoof, the whole thing, ah, bad, 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 right? So the whole picture is just bleak, dark, just one negative after another, right? This guy is just in a horrible, 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 horrible situation, completely isolated from not only other people, but he's isolated from himself, like he's out of his mind. Continuing, verse 6 says, when he saw Jesus in a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. Now, understand here, there's two different 
entities going inside this man. There's the man, and then there's the demons that are possessing the man. And it sounds like this man, the demons who are controlling him, are rushing to worship at Jesus' feet. That's not what's happening at all, right? The demon is controlling the man, and they're rushing, and they're cowering, right? Gollum, right? That's probably lost on a lot of us here. But, but he's, he's, he's cowering in fear. He's not bowing and worshiping. Don't, don't get confused here, right? The demon recognizes his day might be up, right? Right? So he falls on his knees in front of him, right? And then the demon in the man speaks. This is important. Listen to this. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That's an important phrase. For Jesus, for, in God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, whether the demon was attempting to control Jesus by naming him, right? In the ancient world, this idea of if you're exercising someone, you have power over them by saying their name, right? We even have that in modern culture. My wife tells me about it all the time when she's on the playground and somebody does something bad, and if she can name the kid's name, right, there's power. There's power in, in naming. That's why we nickname people, and we give them bad names, right, because we're exercising power over them. So we got this kind of thing going on, and you'll notice that Jesus doesn't play by that silly game. He just commands the demons and they go, right? He doesn't have to name them or he never says the demon's name, you'll notice. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself here, right? So I don't know if he's attempting to control Jesus or he's simply begrudgingly admitting that this is Jesus, the Son of God, right? And that title, Son of the Most High God, that's a very specific title, Right? In Jewish culture, that is a title that ascribes to God the power over all the universe and all supernatural power aligned against him. That was the idea in their head. So immediately, this phrase is perfect for the situation. And everybody but us, we kind of, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. But they recognize right away that title means something. That's an incredibly important title. Um, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And again, the hearer kind of thinks, oh, Jesus is going to start an exorcism. Name him. But again, you notice Jesus never names them, never says the name, doesn't have a technique, right? Just get out of the man, gone. Jesus, amazing. My name is Legion. Now understand right away, Legion's not a name, right? It's not any kind of proper name. You think, right, what, what the demon is trying to do to Jesus. And I think he's a little confused. He's not sure, like, am I about to die or am I about to win? I, you know, I'm powerful, but man, this, this, this son of the most high God. Right? So he, he's basically trying to tell Jesus, like, um, you're only one person, but we're many. We're thousands. Like he's trying to intimidate Jesus, right? Trying to scare him off. We are many. Verse 10 through 12. And he begged Jesus again and again. Now watch very closely here. The language, the pronouns change. They shift. And I had never seen this before, and it kind of blew my mind. The pronouns shift. You see, like, the bravado, right? And the, like, we're, we have you power in unity. Everybody line up behind me. All you demons, shut up. Quit talking, right? I'll talk for all of us. Now, all of a sudden, watch what happens in this single couple verses here. He begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hill. The demons, no, it's no longer one guy speaking, right? Like, they'd all kind of, okay, 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 we'll let you speak. But now it's like, well, every man for himself, no. Ah! Don't listen to him. Oh, let me out of here. I throw him into the pig. No, let me go. Right? They're all, they're all, no more unity. Demons don't do unity well. Right? They got no love for each other. Demons are just like horrible together workers, I guess. So the demon begged you to send us into the pigs, allow us to go into them. Right? All, all pretense of power and unity gone, gone. 
Verse 13, he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, and they went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Now, I've looked at this passage, and I spent a crazy amount of time this week trying to, I mean, that, that's kind of where our modern ears think, well, what about the pig farmers? Jesus just stole from their livelihood. And we get all kind of caught up, and I was kind of trying to, trying to find a, a guy. I found this. This made sense to me, so this is one theologian. Just kind of broaden your horizons. If you can land on this one if you want, right? He writes this. He seems for the moment that the two parties, right, the demon and Jesus, have come to a mutually amicable agreement. The demons will leave the man as Jesus wants, but they don't have to leave the land as they want. But the comedy concludes when the demons, upon entering the pigs, find themselves incapable of controlling them and send them careering over a cliff into the sea. Careening over a cliff into the sea. This gruesomely funny conclusion emphasizes the destructiveness of the demons as well as their short-sightedness. Right? Incapable of restraining their brutal rage, they unintentionally destroy their new lodgings and so thwart their own desire to stay in the land. Like, so like, like Jesus wasn't doing this. He's like, they totally did it to themselves, right? It, it, I, I get the impression that this is not on Jesus, right? This, this is the demons, and they're just so messed up. Man, they, they, they destroy themselves. Keep reading. 14, verse 14. Those tending to the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, which is the fact that tells us that previously he was undressed and therefore what? <laughs> okay, so the, there's the fact right there. He was undressed and not in his right mind. And they were afraid. Now, at first, this is the kind of fear, the same kind of fear that the disciples felt. Like, who is this man? who can command the wind and the seas and apparently command demons, right? Who is this guy? But then their fear grows. Then it gets a little bit weird. Those who had, been, had seen it told the town people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. So now they understand the whole backstory, and I don't know what they're thinking. My, my, my immediate thought is, um, I'm not as bad as that guy, but I know I'm not so not righteous. <laughs> Am I next? Or is my illicit business that I have running on the side, is that going to go over the cliff next? This holy man in our presence, he's going to mess every. Just go, go, go away. I don't want to get singled out. Go away, go away. Here's the real kicker of the story. The shocker for the original audience, and again, it kind of slips by us just a little bit. His interaction with this unclean Gentile, this demonic, should have made Jesus unclean, but it doesn't, right? Instead of being made unclean, Jesus makes the man clean and well. What everybody thought was now happening in reverse. Anything that Jesus touches, it's like time goes backwards. What was dead comes back to life, right? Jesus brings people out of community and isolation back into community. He breaks the expected boundary in several different ways, right? First, rabbis are not supposed to go into Gentile areas. Jesus, the rabbi, does fairly regularly. Then a demonic approaches him, and instead of ignoring him, Jesus engages in him. Another strike. Jesus, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
And again, he doesn't become unclean by this encounter, but instead he has the power to make the man clean. What had been traditionally unclean, Jesus is saying, no more boundaries. What you've been saying is unclean, I'm now making clean. Boundaries, just getting knocked down left and right. Barriers, just being dropped. The detail is important because this connects with the stories that follow this. Remember I said there's a couple stories, the sower and the, and the common of the seed. Now there's some stories that follow this one immediately afterwards, right? He's going to go heal Jarius' daughter. He's a dead girl. So number one, she's dead. Don't touch dead bodies. Strike one, Jesus. On the way to healing this dead girl and touching her, he sees a hemorrhaging, strike two, Jesus, bleeding. Woman, strike three, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? Mark is screaming at the audience, Jesus loves all of us, not just you good Jewish people. He loves all you who are messed up and a little bit nutty in your mind or a little bit off-center. He loves you all. He just loves you all so much. Who is this Jesus, right, who can calm the wind and the waves and restore people to wholeness and community? Again, there's a very, very clear image here, right? Crystal clear. This man had physically lived outside of community, and he's now drawn into community. He was also separated from his mind, so he doesn't even have himself. He finally gets his self back, so he gets himself, and he, and he, and he gets community Again, notice Mark's powerful use of military language here. Legion, right? 6,000 Roman military soldiers. And the the word, hit that next slide there, hit that next slide. Um, Jesus orders, orders the pigs. And again, the word being used is a military ordering of men into battle or into do something. And the pigs rushing, again, the Greek word is a term used for troops rushing into battle. I just kind of hold on to that idea. The imagery shows just how powerful, first of all, the opposition to Jesus was, but the way Mark tells the story, I know somebody more powerful. I know this guy, Jesus, he's more powerful than even the Roman military that y'all are so shaking, f- afraid of. The disciples and the others were questioning who Jesus is, but the disciples recognized him right away. They knew. They couldn't shut their mouths, right? They knew who he was. Even the wind and the waves obey. Even powerful demons obey. Even the military of the Roman Empire apparently is no match for Jesus. During Lent, we have a lot of time to reflect um, ways in which we have separated ourselves from community and maybe separated ourselves from God and we, we, we sometimes we look at our sin and we, we run a, a risk, right? We, we belly button gaze maybe just a little bit too much sometimes, which I think is why God instituted these rhythms in our life, these, these what I'm just going to call taste and see rhythms in our life. Right? If we spend too much time, again, belly button gazing, we, it kind of morphs into narcissism, a very unholy narcissism. Right? We gaze too long at ourselves and we forget that there's other people around. We get so much in looking in our own pain and our own sorrow that we pretty soon can't see anybody else's pain and sorrow. That's what happens if we gaze too long. Right? So God institutes these rhythms right, during Lent, fast, but then break the fast in order to keep the fellowship. Let me say that again, fast, but then break the fast in order to keep the fellowship, 
right? You turn in, but turn back out. Turn in. And we, we have these rhythms, right? Every Sunday, God breathes us in to this place, and we have healing in this place. And then he breathes us back out. That's a rhythm. And then you're six days out there, and then on Sunday, he breathes us back in to clean us up and to heal us, and he breathes us back out. Sabbath is a rhythm once a week. God says, stop what you're doing. Stop being self-sufficient. And for one day a week, call me sufficient. One or two things will happen at that point. Either God will make your six days as productive of seven as seven could have been, or he's going to tell you, you know what, that seventh day you didn't need it anyway, so just be still. Just stop. Stop being so self-sufficient. Stop being so, oh, look at me, look at me. Just Lent, again, just another taste and see rhythm that restores to life that which was and is dead or is currently dying. When we ignore these rhythms, we don't get more life, but instead we slowly die. Again, we do this all over. We try to pull away from God's control thinking that I can find life. He's smothering my life. I can have life away from him. What do we find? We find death. We find that he gives us life. Again, so we slowly move from community to the tombs. As soon as we allow ourselves to slowly cycle out of community, and again, kind of COVID made us see you know, what, what it's like to be alone. And I don't say this in a mean way, but, you know, how's that working out for you? You wanted to be alone, and God gave you an opportunity, gave you a whole year to be, be alone. Again, how's that? So deliberately, God sets these rhythms. Deliberately, on a regular basis, he extends a sacred invitation to us to just stop. Well, he... It's an invitation to choose, to either be self-sufficient, right? You don't need to attend worship services. You don't need to attend small group or Sunday school. You don't need to be a part of a ministry. You don't need to do anything. You and God, you got it figured out. These scriptures today scream against that. No, you don't. What you know and what you're doing is you're leading yourself to a slow death of being alone. So this morning, God issues yet another sacred invitation to taste and see, as we, as we share communion this morning, this, this is literally God saying, taste and see how much I love you. It's not a literal kind of a gross kind of thing, but, but take in my love. Take in my son. Let him be the center of your life. And what was dead or dying is going to come back to life now. Again, don't take my word for it. Today, God invites you to come and see for yourself. By participating in communion this morning, you're saying several things. Number one, you need Jesus. And number two, you need this body. Because you don't take communion by yourself. You recognize we always do this as a body. And the fact of the matter is, all around the globe, followers of Jesus Christ are doing this thing that he called us. He said, stop. Just stop for a minute. Just stop. Be still and know I'm the Lord. You're not. I've given you a lot of power. I've given you a lot of decisions, but it doesn't start with you. It always starts with me. You simply respond. It always starts with me. 
COVID stole a lot of community from us, and Jesus is here to give it back to us. He wants to give us back community. He wants to give us, he wants to see us hugging and laughing. He wants to see us crying and hugging. He just, that's what he wants to see. And there's not a person in this room, I I don't think anybody in this room doesn't want to see that either. So again, we're going to share communion this morning. And by sharing in communion, you're saying that I, I want to, I want to participate in this rhythm. I want to self-evaluate, but then I want to look at Jesus. And I want to celebrate what he did for me, that his body was broken for me and his blood spilled for me, and it made me clean. It was God demonstrating also just how much he loves messed up me and messed up you. So as you prepare these elements that you've been getting ready and you didn't spill it on your light-colored clothes, I'm going to read from the letter to the Corinthians that Paul wrote. I'll go nice and slow. I'm going to read pray first. Father, if there's anybody in this room right now, they're, they're, they've heard what you had to say, and they've decided, I, I want to participate now. I'm tired of being alone. I want to be a part of this amazing body. I want to be a part of this amazing Savior. I want him to be a part of me. And so, Father, this morning I'm, I'm tired of being self-sufficient. I, I'll do everything I'm supposed to do, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the drivers, the reins in your hands, Jesus. You're going to call the shots. And listen, if you're listening to me and you're saying this prayer, you don't know what the future holds. I'll just tell you that right now, but it's better than what your past held. This is what I know, and that's what 2,000 years of testimony tells me as a fact, that if you say this prayer, if you invite Jesus into your heart, into your life this morning, things will begin to change. What was dead and dying will slowly come back to life, but have the ears and the eyes to hear what God has to say. This isn't about you. This is about his purposes and you being aligned to his purposes. That's where you're going to find joy. That's what God's word tells us. That's what testimony and after testimony tells us. Father, again, thank you for the work that you did this morning, the work that you got started long ago, and I don't know whose life or how many lives, but you, you pushed that work a little further down that journey, down that road, Father, this morning. And it's a red-letter day for some folks this morning, and we, we celebrate with those folks who decided that this morning I'm going to trust Jesus, right? I want to have life. So, Father, we, we thank you for, for every life that you changed this morning. We, we thank you for every life that you have already have in your hand, um, but somebody decided to move a little bit closer to you, to give up just a little bit more of themselves to be a little bit more like you. And, Father, that, that they would find joy in that trade-off, that they would find a lasting peace and a happiness that nothing on this earth can give. Father, we thank you in advance for all these things. We thank you for the, the fact that it's already happening in so many lives right here in this building. And, Father, our prayers that we could infect other people, infect them like the COVID, right? Just be near them, and they're like, wow, that person was near Jesus. I can feel it. 
Father, help us be infectious. Hope that's the right word. Thank you, Father. Your son's in my pray. Amen.